0: Welcome to Helium Podcast Episode 9. We believe researchers should only struggle to solve the problems of scientific inquiry and the rest should be a bunch simpler. I'm Matt Hotze.
1: And I'm Christine ogilvie Hendren,
0: And we're your hosts for Helium Podcast.
1: Before we get started today, we wanted to remind you about the poll we're running on themes for future episodes. Please go to www.teamhelium.co. Slash poll to answer four short questions that are going to help us address what is most
0: interesting for you and solves problems you might have. Yeah, thanks for going there and checking that poll out, guys. So today, Gary McDowell and Becky Lijak from the Future of Research joined us for a conversation about better practices around peer review processes. They're running a survey. Yes, I know another survey. We just mentioned a survey. But we're going to be linking this survey from the episode show notes for this episode. So those will be found at teamhelium.co slash episode nine, just like any other episode, just you're looking for episode nine. And this is this survey is something we're very excited about. We just heard about it a couple of weeks ago. And what they're trying to do is bring a little bit more transparency to the review process. So essentially there are sometimes people that do reviews that don't get credit for them because they're done in conjunction with their advisor or, or in conjunction with a mentor and they don't get credit for doing the work of, or at least part of the work of the review. So what they're trying to get a handle on is how often this happens. So what they'd like you to do is to go to their survey, kind of fill out a few questions and and get a general sense of how often this is happening in the peer review process. So again, go to our show notes at teamhelium.co slash episode nine to find the link to the peer review survey.
1: Yeah, I thought it was a really good fit with what we are about here at the helium podcast because it talks about things that are not always brought to light but not necessarily maliciously so it's just that this falls under the category of things that are part of academic life but are often handed down inexplicably just by observation. So we'll talk a lot more about this with Gary and Becky, but um, we really liked hearing them talk about how transparency in this area will empower people to guide their own careers more directly. Um, Even sharing such things as postdoc salaries, for example. So we hope you come away with this conversation with insights about good ways to mentor, guide, and recognize people in the peer review process beginning early in their research life and extending throughout. So here is our conversation with
0: Gary McDowell and Becky Lijack from The Future of Research. Hey, we're welcoming to the show today, Gary McDowell and Becky Lijack. I think I got that right. So welcome, Gary and Becky. Hi.
2: Hi, thanks. You did get it right. We're so glad you're here to talk with us. Um, Why
1: don't we just jump right in by asking both of you to... Kind of talk about your backgrounds and the whys behind what you're doing, what you're doing today.
2: Sure. Gary, you want to start?
3: Um sure. I can I can go ahead. Yeah, I am currently the executive director of the nonprofit future of research. Uh, it's an organization that is led by and works with early career researchers. And we're trying to help champion, engage, and empower early career research folks uh, going through their training to pressure changes in how we're doing science how we're carrying out research from the the sort of problems that they're experiencing and that they think are affecting how we're doing science Uh, and we're very evidence-based through like gathering a lot of data um, and giving a lot of data to early career folks to help them figure out what they're going through and how to navigate it Um, and I got into this work I had a reasonably traditional track I did my Undergrad, masters, and PhD, all in the UK, and then moved over to the US to do a postdoc. And I ended up doing two postdocs, both of about two years' length. And it was during that time that I started to experience some of the systemic issues that were frustrating uh, in trying to navigate not only my own career but in how to do um, scientific research in in the way that I thought was was the correct way or or the the, the sort of best way. Um, For, for doing that. And, um, around that time, there were a group of us in Boston who got together and we ended up hosting a conference, uh, bringing together early career researchers to discuss a lot of these systemic issues we were facing, uh, and try and come up with solutions, uh, for how to fix it. Um, and we had that meeting. We came up, workshopped a bunch of solutions. We wrote a paper up about it. The long story short, it ended up seeding a bunch of meetings around the country too. And then the formation of a nonprofit. Um, which I'm now uh, working on full-time, which is great fun.
0: What about you, Becky?
2: Right. So I'm Becky Lajek. I am currently an assistant professor of biological sciences at Mount Holyoke College, which is a research liberal arts college, um, which means that it's a primarily undergraduate institution. Um, We're also a women's college, a gender diverse women's college, which means um, that we accept all gender minorities uh, in the college. Um, And this is a place that really aligns with my philosophy and mission of how academia ought to be inclusive. And so this was a, um, the type of institution that I always wanted to work at when I was going through the sort of traditional um, academic pipeline. I met Gary when I was also a postdoc in Boston at Harvard Med School, and I was one of those postdocs that helped to create this new movement in the Boston area where we were feeling like early career researchers' voices needed to be heard. Um, There were a lot of us postdocs in the Boston area and still are that were going through very similar experiences, and we felt like there were problems that we had the tools to solve. And so um, part of that team that helped create the Future of Research organization.
0: Very nice. It sounds like Boston was a was a fun place to be a postdoc at that time. Lots of, lots of cool collaborators.
2: We met some great people. And Gary is a very close friend of mine, which is why we continue to collaborate to this day. So yeah, absolutely. Boston was a great place
1: we can uh, identify with that. I actually, my husband and I got married in Matt's backyard. We were grad student Aww. buddies together and have a lot of history too. So I think that's a great part of going forward actually in, in science and research is that you can build these kind of long-term life friendships and also get your goals done. So that's great to hear you guys are in that route too.
2: That's right. My cat Queso is a big fan of Gary, so we're very close.
3: I <laughs> like that. I like Mutual, mutual feelings there. Yes,
1: I'm a fan of Queso's, I'm a, a fan of Queso's name. Thank <laughs> like, you. That's You're a Freudian slip. In case I ate too much. <laughs> that's right. Uh,
0: Oh man. So Gary, I wanted to go back to the future of research, uh, what you're the executive director for. So one of the things, uh, that you mentioned that you are focused on gathering data and finding the evidence, the critical data that people need to, to make decisions. And so what do you, what are you finding in terms of data that people are the most hungry for? I mean, now that you're, you've been out there, you've been working, what do you get the most inquiries about in terms of data?
3: It's surprising how little information that there is about the people going through this system. Um, there's a lot of, lot of focus on you know, how many papers people are producing and how much grant money they're getting and all, all of this kind of metrics of productivity. And you know, there are very basic questions like, we don't know how many postdoctoral researchers there are in the U.S., despite the fact that we're supposedly training them all to become academics. Um, you know, it's very hard to know how to train a scientific workforce if you don't know how many people you're training at any given time. And so, you know, we don't even know how many people there are now. So clearly we don't know where people go after they leave. I think this is one of the biggest questions is trying to get a sense of where people are going after they finish doing a, a PhD, after doing a postdoc or multiple postdocs, which is very common. And so that's really what people are looking for is information about where they can go um, with what they have learned. And that's that's really what we're trying to grapple with uh, a lot of the time is, is giving that transparency, not least because there's this excuse sort of given, justification of the system that, well, you know, nobody is forcing people to go through the system and nobody forces anyone to be a postdoc, right? Um, Which is fairly true, but it's not something that people are able to do in making a rational decision. There's multiple pieces of evidence that show that 80, 80% of um, American-trained biomedical PhD students will go on and do a postdoc, which is quite a frightening number. A lot of people are defaulting into it because it's an easy path to follow. It's the path of least resistance. It's a known track. A lot of people around you are often encouraging you to do that and to go down the academic route. And it's, there's a lot of frustration that um, the postdoc really is, has become a position more of cheap labor in fulfilling someone else's aims on their grant, rather than certainly what I think the postdoc should be, you know, you've learned how to be a scientist as a PhD student. Now you should be learning how to mentor people, how to manage a group, how to manage that group to take your own independent research goals forward. And, you know, we have massive issues with postdocs unable to get training, a lot of junior PIs, the first thing they say is, nobody taught me how to mentor anyone, how to manage anyone. Um, and there's a massive issue with postdocs being unable to take their projects with them when they finish. So th- this is a, a lot of what we're trying to, to, to focus on is the transparency around where people go and, and how they get there.
2: And how could we possibly know whether or not we were succeeding in training people for the next step in their career if we don't know what the next step in their career is? If there's no data on where people are going after their postdoc, right? And then so some of, some of it is about the postdoctoral experience itself. But I think also another bigger part of it is where does it fit in, in people's life stories? And, and can we make the postdoc serve the needs of the postdocs themselves?
1: That kind of brings up for me um, a great segue to, you, know, you guys have both talked about being focused on an evidence basis. Uh, what are the most critical data that people seem to be hungry for or that you find the most useful in advancing what you're trying to do with the future of research?
2: I was just going to say more generally, maybe Gary can speak more specifically to that answer, but I think more generally, We we were you know we are scientists we are we are data driven thinkers in general we like evidence based answers to things and yet we were feeling appalled that so much of the counseling that we were getting or the the training that was happening was just from one person your mentor's sort of anecdotal experience and that person's individual preferences and ideas about how they would there would be a mentor and so that we just wanted to take the guessing game and the chance out of it that the the data was helping to drive more informed decisions. Um, So that doesn't quite answer your question, which was, okay, what are the key pieces of data that people want? Certainly, postdoc numbers is one of that, uh, one of those key pieces of data that Gary touched on. Postdoc salaries is another one of them um, that we were really interested in collecting data on. Gary can maybe speak to that effort a little bit more with the future of research.
3: Yeah. So the, yeah, referring to the salaries part, you know, we were, we became very interested in this idea of, you know, a lot of the recommendations on how to improve the system focus around making postdocs more expensive. Um, they are the cheapest part of the labor system. They're cheaper than grad students by some estimations, and they're obviously cheaper than permanent staff scientists. So um, there's been a lot of focus about raising salaries, not only to, you know, help them be more financially stable, but also to actually wean people off having as many of them as we do now. And, you know, there were a lot of changes around salaries a couple of years ago with a federal labor law. And so we started investigating, um, again, knowing that a lot of institutions don't know how many postdocs they have. A lot of them have policies that sort of align with what the National Institutes of Health um, lays out as their recommendation. And so we were interested in seeing, well... If you don't know who your postdocs are, how sure are we that people are getting paid what they should be getting paid and that these policies are actually being enforced and implemented? Um, and so we gathered a lot of information on that. It was quite revealing that we found that the, the NIH is actually determining the salary. the med- Their minimum salary determines the median salary for all postdocs in all fields across all public institutions in the U.S. that we looked at. It's, and it's actually a policy that only legally affects a very small proportion of researchers, but actually has this, you know, uh, the institutions use it as a guideline, as a benchmark. And so everyone is sort of is tied to what NIH decides there. So that's, that's been an interesting part for us in figuring out the landscape of what um, people are getting paid, but also what the policy levers are to pull afterwards so that we know, well, and, and in fact, um, The President of Future Research of our board, Dr. Jessica Polka, and myself were both on a study mandated by Congress at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And um, in that report, we ended up making this recommendation that, you know, postdoc salaries need to go up. This has been recommended many times. But we were able to point specifically to NIH needs to raise their stipend levels to this amount, and then institutions need to apply local adjustments for cost of living on top of that. So this is this is really useful in in uh, helping us you know also try to shape policy and a, another another piece of data again people are really interested in is career outcomes tracking and there's been a uh i think a, a a somewhat realization by institutions in the US that uh this is the most basic information they could be giving they have not been giving it for a long time and they a lot of them are realizing it doesn't look very good that People don't know where their PhDs go after, and some institutions have been providing this data and have found it is extremely useful in recruiting, um, you know, good graduate students. So it's it's useful seeing how data can be used to incentivize some of the changes too, because because early career researchers in particular are asking about this data and they find it strange when an institution can't provide it.
0: So actually, that's I think it's there are two aspects there of like kind of people. For lack of a better term, kind of living the postdoc, kind of living in the shadows of the data. Mm-hmm. And also, this idea of low cost labor. Mm-hmm. And so, I wanted to transition this into something we definitely wanted to talk about on this call, which is the early career researcher peer review survey that you're currently doing. Uh, and, and so, I, I just wanted to give you a chance, maybe I'll, I'll throw it to Becky first. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about the survey, the importance of the data that you're gathering in this area.
2: Right. So one of the major things that early career researchers do in in their academic labor is is contributing to this process of of peer review of manuscripts for publication in journals, which um, all of us feel very strongly is an essential part of the scientific enterprise. And so when Gary and I were at a conference recently where um, a survey that was published in eLife was discussed that found that many early career researchers, and Gary can give you probably the numbers on this, um, were participating in peer review, um, and that some of them were even doing so without input from their mentors, the, the principal investigators or the leaders of the lab, the people that the Journals had contacted directly and asked to review the manuscript, right? And this was a this was a common practice that Gary and I experienced. So anecdotally, a lot of the young people in the room were were saying, Oh yeah, this is we do this. You know, the journal gives a manuscript to your PI, the PI gives that manuscript to somebody in the lab who has expertise that's pertinent to that journal and asks for their input in reviewing the manuscript, whether that's intellectual input like their ideas or actual writing, you know, having them write a portion of the report that would then go back, or even the whole report that would then go back to the journal. Um, But that in that process, the names of the early career researchers that were contributing to peer review were not making it through that pipeline. So their work, their intellectual labor was, um, but that their names were not. Um, And that often it it was only the name of the PI that was being put on that piece of academic labor, and then submitted back to the journal. And so we found this sort of generational divide where um, older folks in the room were saying, oh, no, no, that never happens. And younger folks in the room were saying, oh, that's that happens to me all the time. Um, so it sort of revealed this thing that was obvious to us that we realized was not obvious to everyone. And so it, it opened up this can of worms of you know, should we be collecting data on this? Who is who is contributing to peer review? How are they contributing to peer review? Um, which is sort of the experiences of the community, um, especially the early career research community, and how they engage in peer review, but also the opinions of the community. Is this practice okay? is is it ethical? Um, Is it okay to ghostwrite, quote unquote, um, a a peer review report for a manuscript? Um, And if it's not, if the community feels like that's not an acceptable practice, if that's too close to plagiarism, for example, to have somebody write academic work and then have someone else's name put on that work, then what are we going to do about it? What kind of recommendations can we make to make this process more in line with our preferences and goals? So that's really what drove this sort of anecdotal experiences is what drove us to want to collect data on this because we realized we just didn't have any comprehensive way of answering these questions.
1: I think that is such a a great alignment with what we are really trying to do, which is to bring out into the light many things that are maybe unspoken for a variety of reasons uh, in academia, just because you're sort of it's a very learning by doing type of an experience often. And, um, you know, I, I love what you are focusing on here, which is that people are encouraged to share in a group what the practices that they are kind of accustomed to are, they'll probably report what happened in their world. And, you know, things can be accidentally uncool. Uh, you know, in, in a way that he, probably the mentor did not intend to just delegate without also sharing the credit. Sure. But, um, but these are the type of things that happen in kind of the interstitial spaces in academia that don't always get talked about.
2: Yeah. Since I think it's an example of, of, of a lot of a common theme in academia, which is we do it this way because it's how it's always been done. Right. And so this was the, this was the pause moment where Gary and I were like, whoa, whoa, let's let's pause here and, and just reflect on that. Like, are we OK with that? Um, what does that mean to us as a community? So, yeah, I, I completely agree with what you just said and that I think this is one example of a common theme. And I think one of the beautiful things about future research is, as you say, is the goal is to sort of shed some light on common practices and give us a moment to reflect on whether those are common practices in academia that we're happy with as academics.
3: Yeah and this was it was so funny too that, that this happened while we were at this meeting because it was such a, a key example of something that a few of us who sit in a lot of these committees now in these rooms a lot of senior people um, that we're experiencing of it's amazing the things that people aren't aware of purely because they haven't spoken to an early career person or had a person in the room at that time. And we were already working on a project that we're about to launch too called Who's On Board, which is specifically trying to get more people into these kinds of leadership positions. So, you know, getting them onto voting positions in scientific societies is our sort of first target and then expanding that across the research enterprise because it's there is a sort of dawning realization in a number of committees and settings now of, oh, most of the research enterprise is actually made up of early career folks, and yet they are usually – not present. I mean, the National Institutes of Health really got burned by this last year when they tried to cap the number of grants essentially that an investigator could get. And it was shot down very quickly by a lot of senior folks. And there was a junior person in the room who said there is not, who, who went along to the meeting and said there is not a junior person around this table. And we feel extremely betrayed by by what is happening here because we're absent from this conversation. And it really didn't look very good for them. And so that's, you know, something that we were already kind of thinking of. And I thought this is a good example of this in practice. Um, and it's interesting too that it's, it's not the kind of opposition, the sort of opposition that we faced most immediately was not people saying that this shouldn't happen. It was the people insisting that it doesn't happen. And it's interesting because it's people who are very well-meaning. You know, with people who are opposed to something, it's like a you sort of know where you stand because you disagree with them, but at least you both agree the problem is there. It's just whether it's a problem in their, in their mind or not. But with this, it was this idea of this couldn't possibly happen because I cannot countenance the idea that my peers would do this, you know, and it's and that I never experienced this, so therefore it didn't happen. And it varies, too. You know, a bunch of senior people have contacted me and said, it's great that you're doing this. This was a problem back when I was a postdoc in the 60s, you know. And, like, and you know, we spoke with various people. It was just interesting to see all of the individual reasons why people were doing this. And that's sort of what led to the survey because, you know, even Becky and I had very different experiences as to why our names had not been put down. And so we wanted to really get a sense of what are the reasons? What is the fundamental thing? And the, you know, the, the ultimate ask that we have is very simple. I and mean, it's literally a text box and an expectation that you put in the co-reviewers names, um, you know, and that's that's within the editorial group. It doesn't it's not public. We're not asking that early career folks be named publicly. But, you know, the, I find it very hard to listen to, to journals complaining about the lack of reviewers when I'm like, well, you know, you don't know who your reviewers are if you don't have the opportunity to actually receive all of the names.
2: And and each PI is probably as as one person in your reviewer pool is really representative of their whole team of people, yes. right? And if those names were part of the reviewer pool, with you know, that would solve a second problem, which is that we don't have enough reviewers in the reviewer pool.
3: Yeah, and that also, yeah, that gets to like the diversity of the reviewer pool as well, right? You know, people are complaining there's yeah. not enough diversity in the pool and most of the diversity we know is in the early career researcher pool. So again, this is this this sort of can really lead to solving so many problems, more transparency about training and peer review. So we're sort of really driving at this very simple thing, but with so many possible, you know, ways of making peer review more transparent and really appreciating and encouraging the role of early career researchers in that process.
1: I think that the word you highlighted here in talking about transparency is so important because transparency in itself can solve a number of problems, both, you know, just the, the well-meaning, unknowing practice of drawing on people's work without giving them acknowledgement, which I have to say, when I was preparing for our interview, I, I told Matt, I thought I said, that happens. I just, I never knew that wasn't a thing in my particular academic family tree. Um, my advisor passed me many reviews, but they were to me to be the named reviewer. So I inherited that procedure and I thought that's how it was done. And I never yeah. questioned it. And I'm sure okay. the people who got a different treatment also did the same, you know? So um I think shining a light on everything is such a powerful approach that you guys are taking in itself. And I wondered if you all could talk about, you know, about identifying really the fact that you're dealing with a change management issue and you know, in addition to the next step after transparency is some sort of normative approach to saying this is the way that it, things should or ought to be in a best, most equitable state. So how do you identify and deal with attitudes toward change um, and changing paradigms in academia that might differ where some people will be more favorable toward a change like you mentioned and um, and some will be more hesitant and say no the system works this is how it works this is how we do it and so what are the main pushbacks you experience and how do you address them
2: this is a really good and really hard question I think that I think that, <laughs> I think that um, one thing we're hoping this survey will do is to confirm or deny what you just said which is that some people agree some people disagree I think it'll be very interesting to see how people feel on this topic right I don't want to maybe a Priori assume that my anecdotal experience with this is going to be broadly accepted in the community. So I'm I haven't seen the results of this survey. I'm really excited to do that because I I want to know the answer to that question. Is is this really a very small minority of people that feel like this is the way it ought to be, um, and everyone else wants to make the change? Um, that you know that plagiarism is bad and this is plagiarism and we need to change it or is it the opposite that that everyone feels like this is the system this is how it works it worked well for me why are we trying to change that now so my gut reaction to you is i don't i don't even know what the pushbacks will be because we haven't yet seen all of the responses in the survey but i'm really excited to get a better handle on what i think is a very important question
3: yeah the I probably am um, experiencing the the pushbacks in a in sort of my day-to-day life m- far more often than Becky is with with the nature of my my work so it's I can sort of anticipate in this specific case this is a survey that we've put out that the problem you know we we were thinking very hard about this survey because we wanted it to be as scientific as possible but also you know yeah, the caveats and a big issue is clearly going to be that people will sort of self-select into participating in a survey if they have strong feelings. So that's going to be the first pushback. And the way I think we're, we're, you know, we want to counter that is not to say, Oh, you know, such and such percentage of people are doing this because we're going to have probably the people who are doing it most often are the ones who are going to have felt uh, the need to apply. Yeah. But we can definitely point out somewhat the frequency. So we can say, We don't know how, what proportion of ECRs are doing this, but we know that it perhaps happens enough that this is a problem that we need to solve. And I think everyone can probably, hopefully reasonably agree with that, that if people are reporting this and reporting particular aspects very commonly, you know, I, I was joking with Becky when we first started this because we sort of took the project up, you know, basically as a result of this conference, I said, we should really pick this up and run with it. It fits again very well with this leadership issue that we're already tackling, but I had this amazing sense of this being one of the easiest problems that I'm, you know, that I'm looking at to solve because, you know, we were in this meeting, um, uh, for ASAP Bios peer review meeting and it was full of journal editors and, and all sorts of people thinking about peer review. And it was interesting to see the response of, mm, yeah, this really shouldn't be a problem. And it's quite an easy fix. And this, you know, the, the, the argument seemed very winning to a lot of particularly journals I found. And some of them I have noticed have been clarifying their, um, already their, their terms. And, you know, there, there's groups like F1000 research already. When you do a review, it asks who your co-reviewers are. So, you know, already, even though we're just doing the survey part and we haven't really moved on to doing a lot of the open campaign of, of education about this, there's already a, a beginning to be a shift in the conversation, which is great. So the, the larger problems that I that, you know, that we, we face in, in getting pushback are, so there's the aspect that we discussed of we don't think this happens, and that's where you have to give the evidence. I experience a lot of gaslighting in that I get told a lot of things just don't happen, even though either I've directly experienced them or I know early career researchers who have. Um, this is part of the reason why we're so evidence based is that I'm constantly having to throw papers back at people to demonstrate that something does happen the most common thing I'll hear is that this never happens at my institution. And it's, you know, I, or in, I, my, field. Or in my field. So, you know, one example is I mentioned quite frequently that one third of people who start PhDs in biology, according to NSF data, uh, do not complete them. And people say that doesn't happen here. That never happens at my institution. And, you know, on one occasion I was sitting with someone in the room who had recently done their PhD there and they were like, yeah, no, a quarter of my class dropped out and the person there was someone else from that institution who's like, "Oh, that doesn't happen there." And you just get that you're having to figure out how to push back against that sense of, "Oh no, that can't possibly be true." So that's that's re- relatively easy to do with data. Sometimes people, sadly, are still not convinced by data. But at least when you're argu- arguing in a public space, it's very clear to everyone else who is coming from evidence base and who is not. And the other, the more difficult part is that this is a system that a lot of people have succeeded in and continue to succeed in. And those are the people often who also have the most power. And this, again, I think was demonstrated with the NIH trying to adjust their funding and who would go to. And the pushback entirely came from the institutions and the people who get the most money. And that, that is very tough to deal with because they were also all people who, you know, were in positions able to resign from boards or whatever, or threaten to that threat was put out by, by people on the advisory committee to the director at NIH. And so, That is very tough to deal with because we have relatively little power in that space compared to them. And so part of this is also trying to get other stakeholders and allies on board. Um, and, you know, get the, the community at large to appreciate what is going on. Again, with the transparency, what is actually, there's like a really a double win with us trying to make things more transparent for the early career folks. At the end of the day, if we don't achieve any change in the system, um, we can at least feel better that we are helping people to make more informed choices um, and that people are navigating the system, at least with a sense of, you know, first of all, the system may not change at all, but also what they can possibly do to try to maximize their success or try to have a the least worst experience going through it. But what's interesting in doing that is that because the system is so reliant on the the free market, you know, that nobody really wants to restrict who's going through or how they're doing it or or make any difficult decisions, all the decisions are being left to the early career folks. And so now what we're actually seeing with increased transparency is a very small but very vocal minority of particularly incoming grad students who are saying, yeah, I spent two years as uh, a research assistant in a lab. And I got a better salary and better benefits than the people who were postdocs. And I don't want to be that in 10 years. So I want to get my PhD, but I want to leave uh, academia. And I want you as the institution to tell me what you're doing to provide training and career development to do that. So it puts not only the onus in institutions. They're now having to compete with each other to show that they can do this training. But it also is getting a lot of academics very panicked that people are now saying, why would I want to go down this route? It looks It looks terrible. It looks, you know, and particularly because the route. So I like to think of Becky's position, for example. She's at an institution that I think a lot of us are not being directed towards when we go through this training. You know, she and I were both postdocs at Harvard Med. The expectation was, oh, you should go somewhere like Harvard Med as a PI. Otherwise, you know, like, what's the point of doing this? And I think a lot of people are voting with their feet and saying that it looks it's so competitive. It's it looks somewhat miserable to a lot of us and it's really you know th- there's this there's this really interesting debate in the academic sphere now of how do we make this system more attractive to people and the the response so far has been oh we just have to remind people they can pick up their kids when they like or you know, there's great flexibility, which is, nice. which is which is nice, but also. No, no I'm
2: teasing. Yeah. yeah,
3: but you know, I I see my family more now than I did as a postdoc. So it's not really a very convincing argument to particularly grads and postdocs who struggle to be able to leave the lab. And you know, it also is a very clear signal that the answer the answers that they're getting back to requests for change are we're not going to change the system. You should just appreciate that this is a really great job. And that it doesn't need to change. And, you know, people are seeing that there's resistance to changing anything. And that, again, is just reinforcing, well, if it's not going to change and it's miserable now, why would I want to persist? And that's that really is there's a big question here. Another reason, you know, this is why we looked at salaries, too. We know I knew when I was in Boston, the women were coming up to me and saying, I am leaving my postdoc because I can't afford childcare." And I want to have a kid. Um, And, you know, the same with I'm, you know, people who are saying, oh, why would I want to be in academia? It looks miserable. I don't feel like I'm helping anyone. This kind of thing. Right. All of these struggles people are facing. It's not selecting for the people who are the best academics. It's selecting for people who are willing to put up with the most who are willing to martyr themselves for science is how I always put it. And this 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 martyrdom through the system, through low earnings, and being willing to put up with bullying and harassment, you know, it's sort of seen as a, a badge of honor that you've made it and you deserve to be there. But we don't think that's selecting for the best scientists. You know, it's just selecting for people with a, a certain, you know, with, with grit, I think, is the the thing that's often used as a selection factor. And that's really, you know, we have to ask ourselves, is that is that what we want in selecting who is solving problems? you know, in this, in this enterprise.
0: For sure. So given the, th- that you have this data and that, you know, this, obviously this er- early career researchers peer review survey isn't complete and you don't want to make a comment on that a priori. The The thing that I was curious about is the things that you've, of the things, all the things you've learned so far, uh, given the evidence-based approach that you're taking, what is the, what is one thing that you could, snap your fingers let's say i'll direct this to gary if you if you could snap your fingers and change one thing about academia but only one thing what would that be
3: oh i'm gonna have to give a cop out answer here because this is <laughs> we we face this issue so our, our report came out right it's called breaking through um from the national academies and one of the things that we experienced doing that is that there's no you know, I could give an answer of like, you know, more transparency about career outcomes, but that doesn't change, you know, it changes how people might go through the system, but it doesn't change so many of the, the issues that we're facing. You know, it won't change whether the labor is cheap or not. And I could say, you know, we should raise postdoc salaries, but then that's going to affect how many grants there are because the money has to come from somewhere. You know, and I definitely would not say put more money into the system because the NIH budget was doubled back in, uh, nearly 20 years, well, 20 years ago, beginning. And, um, over a course of five years and that, um, actually just seeded a lot of these behaviors of, well, we can just spend money in this way. You know, it wasn't spent in a sustainable way and a lot of people spent it in, in a way that, you know, mm-hmm. has led to some of the practices we see now. So adding money actually doesn't help. It just kicks the can down the road. And yeah, so we find with this report that this was an extremely complex system and that you had to, it's like a whack-a-mole, right? Like you hit one problem and something else will then pop up. So we tried to recommend a whole swath of things that mm-hmm. really need to happen somewhat in concert for things to change. Um, You know, the most dramatic thing, I think, for a lot of people was we recommended that postdocs on a research grant. So not not people who have their own fellowships or training grants, but the people who are paid off a research grant shouldn't be able to be paid off that grant for more than three years. And, you know, we were suggesting but you shouldn't do this NIH until you've like figured out a pilot of this and um you know whether what, what this would look like and whether it would actually work because it's a very blunt move but you know at the same time we were like we need to move people off these we want more fellowships we want more uh training positions rather than people being on these research things uh we want foreigners to be put onto to fellowships because that basically is there are no fellowships available uh for foreign researchers even though they make up two-thirds of postdocs in biomedicine in the u.s and um yeah, the the, the thing we we're trying to get at the, that that we we're trying to get people to see is imagine that you had some restriction on the postdoc that meant that people couldn't just postdoc indefinitely so that they have more papers than someone else who is also postdocing indefinitely. Because that's we have this issue with the postdoc. You know, people are trying to cap how long it is in various ways, and it's not working because the postdocs themselves have this sense of, but I just need one more paper. I need one more year to do another faculty search. And it's because of the the metrics that we're using and the incentives that we're driving that that is happening. It's not to do with, you know, you can just make the length as long as you like arbitrarily and cut off a whole bunch of people. But if you were to do that, you'd have to use different metrics. I like to think about medical residency training, which is the parallel in the medical track to the postdoc. You know, they're not they're kept at a certain defined period. They have to meet certain training outcomes. They have to do certain things. But that doesn't happen with the postdoc. You know, you don't, you don't pick someone because they're good at mentoring and good at science and good at, you know, it's, it's just how many papers do you have? Do you have the right papers? Is, is sort of the blunt metric a lot of places use. So there's no really like magic bullet that will, that will save
0: everything. <laughs> I
2: think that was like 50 things, Gary.
0: He's accounting for all the effects, the secondary effects <laughs> and the tertiary effects.
3: Yeah, I know. I mean, and that's the problem. I guess, I guess. The, The one thing that could help, because I don't want to help one group and, you know, disadvantage another, I I guess one thing could be if everyone, if academics could all recognize that there is a problem and that we need to fix it, I think that would really be a great start because that's actually one of the biggest barriers right now is people refuse. I've been compared to Chicken Little on more than one occasion. Um, that I'm just squawking about the enterprise falling from the sky, right? So, um, and people say, you know, it survived a long time. It will survive in the future, which I agree
0: with. But I think the
3: direction we're heading in is one that is not good for science or scientists. So, yeah.
0: Well, they, that's what they say about investments, though, is that past performance is not indicative of exactly. future returns. Yeah. So.
2: Can I add one small Thing to what Gary said, which is that I don't know how to do this smartly, but I think so many of these problems would trickle down, trickle, trickle out if academia was, was more inclusive and was more diverse. Because I think so many of these problems come from the fact that almost all of the power comes from very few individuals and that the decisions that those individuals are making Is based on anecdote and personal experience and not based on evidence, right? And so I think if we can broaden the pool and make the people in the room at the table who are making those decisions be able to represent diverse opinions, um, diverse experiences and have all of those people make decisions based on evidence, so many of these problems that Gary so eloquently described, I think, um, could be addressed by that, by that simple simple quote unquote, by that one change, which is not at all simple to, to do. But I think so much of this comes from the um, uh, having a, that the people in, in power have a biased perspective, right? And so this gets back to what you guys described as, as shining a light on things, right? And that's what we see future research as, as helping with is, is trying to build transparency, trying to bring more people to the table, trying to give a voice to early career researchers, since they are such a big part of the biomedical and sorry, the scientific enterprise. Right, that, that, that these folks need to be heard um, and that the diversity of their voices needs to be heard as well. And
0: Becky, I wanted to give you a chance to tell people I know one thing that people can do, and they can probably help you with the survey. So, how can they find the survey?
2: Great. Um, so, the first thing that they can do is they can go to um, futureofresearch.net.
0: We'll put the link on the show notes for this episode, too. So, if people are listening, they will be linked from there.
2: That would be the best.
3: There is another thing, too, that we have. Um, so we have an effort to see what journals are actually doing that people can definitely help with as well, which is um, looking at, it's called the Transpose Project, and it's actually looking at the it's collaboration, looking at a number of aspects of peer review. But we're trying to find out which journals actually do have co-reviewer policies and who do have the little box in there. And, you know, to then figure out who to target thereafter. So this is certainly, you know, this is really the beginning of the project, the data to, to begin to inform us what needs to happen. And then we really need people's help in amplifying what's going on, helping us advocate to journals to make these changes and uh, figuring out what are the, the sort of best practices and thinking about early career researchers and peer review into the future.
1: Well, I feel like this is a really important effort that so many people will be interested in, in a variety of places along
0: the research career pathway. So thank you guys. Thank you. And that wraps up episode nine, guys. I want to thank everybody out there for their positive response to our show. I really appreciate it. Christine really appreciates it. We thank you for your suggestions and we want you to continue to provide those. If you can. As always, the show notes can be found at www.teamhelium.co episode 9. And as always, the show is sponsored by myprofessorwebsite.com. You can go there to find a free guide that asks you five questions about how you're presenting yourself and your research to the world on your website. The music for our episode was provided by Michael Blake at mblakemusic.com. This episode was edited by Zachary Hendren, produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren, and myself, Matt Hotsi. Have a great day. We believe researchers should only struggle to solve the problems of scientific inquiry. Inquiry. Inquiry.
1: (laughs) At least it's at the beginning, because we can just start over. (laughs)